0: I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Dr. Michael Fratkin. He's a husband, a father, and a palliative care physician on a mission to change how care is being reimbursed and delivered to the seriously ill. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. I really do appreciate you taking the time to
1: talk to us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Lately, we've been hearing a lot about palliative care, and so I'm asking people just to help Define that for the everyday person, such as me. I guess the non-clinical person. So, can you help us understand palliative care, and what does that mean?
1: Yeah, I I do that every single day when I meet somebody new. Um, there's a formal and well vetted definition that comes from the Center to Advance Palliative Care, but every day I answer that question um, at the bedside with real people, and the way that I do it is I say that we simply are. Um, Uh, A specialty of medicine, an interdisciplinary team, a group of inspired individuals focused on two things, helping manage the things you feel from a medical illness, uh, symptoms, pain, breathlessness, nausea, vomiting, whatever it is, uh, and whatever's causing it. We've got a very good bag of tricks, and we know how to use it. So number one, we focus on symptom control. Number two we help people and their families to navigate, uh, to make their way through what can be incredibly complicated medical situations. um, But what are always very difficult situations. Uh, The people we take care of are not troubled by a rash or a sniffy nose or a sprained ankle the people we take care of are up against it so our focus is on symptom control and navigational assistance Um, we define the goals of our treatment on the basis of what people want Um, we have an eye on quality of life um, and we have an eye on the whole systems of life the whole person uh, going through whatever they're going through medically.
0: And you, as a physician, you've practiced in many different ways. You were primary, you've been in acute setting, you've been even a clinic setting, a hospital, a hospice medical director. But why, personally for you, why did you choose palliative care?
1: It chose me. Um, Long before I ever considered a career as a physician in medicine, um, I was drawn to what was happening around me um, back in the uh, uh, early 80s when young men like me were dying of HIV. That caught my attention. I wondered what it was like to be a 20-something-year-old young man Uh dying. Uh, And I had uh, friends that were gay and at certain risk from behaviors and some concern about their well-being. So I volunteered at a hospice organization where I lived in Florida um, and began to kind of step a little closer to a place where most people step back And I discovered that there was extraordinary stuff happening right at the edge of living and dying, and uh, that people had a lot to teach me um, if I had the courage to come in a little bit closer. And then I I went about the business of just gathering the credentials and skill sets so that when I got up close to people who are dealing with their mortality directly that I had something to offer them.
0: You talk about skill set, you know, can you help me understand a little bit about what that means and, and what you're trying, what kind of skill set do you need when it comes to, being close to people at the end of life.
1: I mean, the, the sort of classical answer to that question is, oh, I'm, I know how to deal with symptoms. I have, you know, amazing medical understanding of physiology and how to use drugs effectively to, um, uh, to manage uh, symptoms. And I, I do. I mean, but the truth is that from a technical perspective, from a purely medical perspective, the work I do is not rocket science. I mean, I do understand modern healthcare and the world of technology. I have uh, pretty good insight into the state of the art in oncology, particularly. Um, but that's not really where the value emerges. I mean, I, frankly, I, I know 10 to 15 drugs really, really well. <laughs> um, the value emerges in what I started All those years ago as a hospice volunteer was by coming in close and learning from the people i was working with they've taught me and crafted my way of listening my way of understanding uh, so that it's less a skill set and more a mindset or even to take it a little bit deeper, um, a heart set, (laughs) if there's such a thing. Mm. Uh,
0: no, I love that.
1: uh, allows me to connect with people and understand and anticipate and inquire about what they say they need, what they say is most important. And then I have the magnificent... asset of being a part of a team that includes similarly inspired and courageous nurses, social workers, chaplains, and community health workers um, working together as an integrated whole to take care of our patients who are an integrated whole.
0: So you bring up, you know, the philosophy of an interdisciplinary team and there, you know, big words like hospice are, you know, sort of getting... Um, a little bit more familiar with individuals outside of the healthcare setting and palliative is a, a brand new or very young practice within the last 10 years. But a lot of people confuse the two, you know, they, re, they re, they see palliative and hospice being the same. I mean, in your opinion, can you help us understand what is the difference between palliative and hospice care?
1: Yeah. I mean, fundamentally there is no difference. Um, at its core, um, philosophically, uh, the work that we do in palliative care is entirely rooted in the history and social movement, uh, that hospice, um, brought, uh, to, uh, first England and then, uh, the U S and the world. Um, we see people as whole people. Uh, we see them as part of a family structure. Uh, we, uh, remain focused on them rather than their diseases and we use everything we can think of to um, improve their quality of life the distinction really comes as a result of uh, policy um, and structures of healthcare care financing so in 1982 um, hospice became a medicare benefit and it was thereby defined by the benefit that our legislators did their very best to create. And in so doing, hospice was defined as distinct. And um, around the country, um, there was a vast proliferation over these last 30 or 40 years of hospice organizations that live within that structural framework, that policy and regulatory framework. Um, And... Over the years, the match of what people need as they face serious illness uh, drifted uh, sort of away from the center of that particular box. Um, and so there are plenty of people who are getting lots of active treatment um, in the years before their death. Um, and that whereas their, their death is anticipated, in order to engage the hospice model of care as defined by the Medicare benefit and the insurances that follow that, um, people had to give up um, cancer chemotherapy, uh, interventions and diagnostics in the hospital, um, their uh, central primary care relationship, if that was of value to them, Um, And they had to essentially embrace their approaching death and a pure comfort-based model of care. There's a lot of people who aren't quite ready to do that until very late in the game. And so what hospice was designed to provide care for people um, in the last six months or even more of their life um, but the reality is is that uh, since the population and their needs have shifted, um, the length of stay for hospice organizations has been trimmed down to less than two weeks for half of the people they take care of. So they end up being relegated to the very last stage of the whole palliative care arc um, in the last part of life. Palliative care then emerges and is defined as serious illness care uh, that can be relevant for anybody at any stage of life. Um, So, for example, I have been uh, useful in the obstetrics, uh, the labor and delivery ward of the hospital at times, helping them manage and craft proper protocols for opiate-addicted babies um, to improve the quality of their lives as they're coming off of um uh, exposure to opiates in in uh the first few weeks of their lives so i've worked with those situations i've been down in labor and delivery and managed the well-being of people and families when they've lost a baby um, um Whenever a kid gets a broken bone or needs a surgery or whatever, the pain control that they receive, that's palliative intervention. That's improving the quality of their life in tough situations. It may not be uh, preterminal or leading to their death, but it it's its really important to uh, uh, optimize the well-being of people even though they are uh, facing transient problems. So to answer the question more succinctly, um palliative care is a much more broad scope that can really extend from any time in a person's life when they're facing a serious medical problem. Um but hospice has been relegated to uh, the very last stage of life, um, and so is a special form of palliative care.
0: Exactly. <laughs> um I I I feel that Palliative care is is such a specialty when it comes to pain management and also navigating this. I call it a disease management system and the overrun of how we have um, become within the healthcare system, um, not only to the patients, um, the fragmented care to the patients, but also the fragmented. Productivity of the clinicians, and you don't work in you. I, I guess I should say you work in a very unique organization that you had the privilege to create, and Revolution Care that that is outside of any other model that I've seen before. So, can can you tell me how you went from, you know, the acute setting um, or palliative care setting in the normal health care where everybody sees it's being delivered in a you know, within the hospital or to creating a business that provides this outside of that setting.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, one thing I want to just clarify is the, the name of the organization that I founded was, is resolution care. It's not a coincidence that it rhymes with revolution. <laughs> Sorry <about> that. <laughs> that's part, that's part of its resonance to me, but it's resolution, resolution care. care. Um, Resolution care, um, a common typo. And then, you know, I'm not sure quite the tolerance of this podcast audience to a series of expletives about our current healthcare system. Um, So I won't take the risk and start throwing curses around, but it is so broken, so dysfunctional, such a horror of misaligned incentives and misaligned loyalties. It is in no way a patient-centered or um, person-centered system of care. It is entirely centered around uh, the capacity of systems built on an industrial model to exploit illness and disease in the generation of profits, or in the nonprofit world, uh, revenues over expenses, (laughs) depending on how you do your bookkeeping. Healthcare in America is broken, fragmented, and divided up into small fiefdoms that serve the needs of uh, very specific and powerful stakeholders. That's the situation we find ourselves in. And people with illness, sometimes called patients, are essentially an input or exploitable resource in that world. So now I'm getting off that soapbox. <laughs> but I, I hear I'll, you on that, I'll, though. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that some of my some of the audience members uh, can resonate with that, and I'm happy to talk to anybody who feels differently about the institutional structure of our healthcare system. Um, but there it is. So that's the context. I just happened to be a doctor in this particular phase of evolution of the American healthcare system. And most of that time, I felt spectacularly disempowered and um, maybe mismatched. I mean, my heroes in medicine um, were William Carlos Williams and the idea of the small rural doctor. Um, Benjamin Franklin Pierce, sometimes called Hawkeye, sometimes called Hawkeye Pierce. Um, these, these sort of individual heroic uh, <laughs> um, practitioners who entered the situations with everything that they had and provided what they could in situations that um, required them. Um, the world of healthcare has become a bureaucratic and institutionalized mess. Um, and I spent most of my career, um, dancing around burnout, um, most recently dancing with burnout, um, in an under-resourced program at a community hospital, um, that was faced with four or five times as much work as I could have possibly done, uh, with my partner, a part-time social worker. So... Over the years, and in 2014, I became really disenchanted and uh, considered leaving town and taking some kind of well-formulated job in a better resourced environment uh, with better hours uh, and a sort of fundamental um, corporate structure of medicine. And then when I came back from those interviews where jobs were offered to me Uh, Three times in three weeks, I came back to my beautiful home in far northern California. This morning, I'm sitting outside on my deck looking up at the fog in a beautiful redwood forest. And I came home to this house, and um, I just didn't want to leave. So I knew that if I was going to stay, the current available structures were no longer going to support the development of a really robust community-based palliative care program. So I had to figure out how I would do that myself. And so I did. I put together uh, some concepts, one related to uh, value-based payment, the idea that you can engage in partnership with um, innovative health health plans or health insurance companies to pay for this extra layer of support, this team-based care for people in a new way not on the basis of how much stuff you do to people, but on the basis of the value that you provide to them and the outcome that you generate. So we have a number of those value-based contracts with um, our health plan partners that allow us on a monthly basis to receive X number of dollars. And with that, we can spend those X number of dollars on doing whatever makes sense for people. That frees us up from the billing, the coding, and the uh, ridiculousness of the fee for service structure. So that's a big factor. The second factor is that um, nobody considered the use of telemedicine in home-based care for palliative care uh, for people with uh, palliative care needs. And I began in twenty fourteen to explore that. Tell,
0: what is that? And, what what
1: yeah. is you know telehealth? What
0: what does that mean?
1: Well, telehealth broadly speaking includes things like telephone contacts or uh, asynchronous forms of communication like patient portals and texting and those kinds of communication. Some of the mobile health applications that generate or collect data from the patient and then deliver them uh, to home. But the part of telehealth that's most interesting to me, because I'm a relational communicational guy, is real-time synchronous video conferencing with people what i discovered is is that if you put yourself inside the frame of a communication with a person in their home a virtual home visit using video conferencing in real time um i discovered that it turns out that it's not only just as good as real life but in many ways it's better so, when I talk about telemedicine in the resolution care model, I'm talking about using video conferencing to connect with people in their home. So, I'm either uh, on the porch, on the beach, or wherever I am, and they're at their home, and we're connecting in real time, doing our appointment that way through video conferencing.
0: Which I think is absolutely the future. It. I cannot tell you the technology that is coming about so fast where you know we can connect via a computer um, like we did a few weeks ago and have a face-to-face conversation and, and and very intimate conversation about who we were and who we are as people and what we want to do in the world. And I, I felt so connected. Um, so it really is an impressive way to meet people where they are and I think you're definitely on to something. So talk to me a little bit about how how your company is structured, because it's different than any other company that I've seen.
1: Well, you know, we, <laughs> I'm not really a business guy. I, I'm not really like a CEO. I just kind of play one on TV. Um So I had to sort of back into structuring this thing on the basis of all the stakeholders that I thought were most important. First and foremost, um, I wanted to make sure that I created an organization that took beautiful care of the people that made it work. Um, People like me, people that have been facing frustrations and burnout in all of their activities in the healthcare industry. So the nurses, the social workers, um, the doctors, nurse practitioners, community health workers, chaplains, all those people have a very similar experience to my own, and I needed to provide something that was different, something that was soulful, something that recognized that their experience, their user experience was as important as the experience of the people we care for. So that was critically important to me because I built this thing out of burnout, right? right. I didn't want to re- recreate some crazy, uh, exploitive, industrial, productivity-driven healthcare institution. I mean, what would be the point of that? Well,
0: and you know, that's where every person I talk to in this healthcare system we're in, a lot of them are on the edge of that burnout right where you were. So, I mean, it's really interesting how we take really great care of patients, but we really don't have the structure to take care of ourselves. And find that balance of work and life, and so I applaud you because there's so many clinicians that are just like you, and they're still out there. And that high fee for service—the more you do, the more you bill, the more productivity, um, the more you make—and and so this whole value-based reimbursement s- system is is very intriguing to me.
1: Yeah, and you know the the truth is is that most recently, uh, within the last few years, I can't the or Cite the article, um, but a very well put together study um, documented that within palliative care professionals, um, that the burnout rates for moderate to severe burnout uh, impacting functional ability, professional output, limiting people's uh, longevity, um, was in the sixty-two to sixty-five percent range. So these are the most inspired healthcare professionals I know, willing to walk into the very difficult uh, environment of people facing the most serious illness and the approach of their death. And two thirds of those folks are on the edge of their own personal breakdowns. That's ridiculous. So that's the first stakeholder group. Um, Because I'm in it, I guess. (laughs) That's why that's the first stakeholder group. The second stakeholder group is the community of people that live in a rural environment that choose not to live in the mix of a densely populated area. Um, We out here in rural America, which represents maybe 25 to 30% of the total population, get by and settle for. A lot less expecting or maybe just assuming or presuming that all innovation must come from Silicon Valley, San Francisco, New York, Boston, Chicago, that that's where everything new and good happens. And over many, many years, maybe, maybe, maybe filters or trickles upstream to the rural environments. I thought that was stupid in a world of high velocity cloud-based computing and rapid technology development in my hand i had an iphone and i built an organization with an iphone <laughs> so that was another part of it the other piece is that i've lived here and worked here for 20 years in all those different ways that you mentioned and i have relationships with my community the people i live with um i've taken care of over the years probably more than 2000 people In a population base of less than 100,000 who who've died under my care, I've busted my hump and I've delivered value to those people. And those people recognize the motivation and the spirit with which I've done that work. And so I went to them. I went to the community. I launched a crowdfunding campaign in late 2014 and asked the community to help me build a complete end-of-life care team. And lo and behold, over the course of a bunch of weeks, we raised $140,000 or so. And what was amazing, I mentioned the iPhone, is that at midnight, the night that the campaign closed successfully, at $40,000 above the goal, my iPhone actually blew up in my hand. It got hot. And it went, (laughs) and it broke at the completion of that. So I actually did build this thing on the carcass (laughs) (laughs) of an iPhone 5 or 4 or something. Um, So that's the other stakeholder. And then beyond that, our society must wake up to the realities of what we face. I mean, the fact that human beings are born, live a life, and then they die is the most important secret hidden in plain sight for our culture and civilization. If we can wrap our head around the idea that we're only visitors, and that human society will lives beyond us and we have some responsibility for that, well, that has implication not just for how we care for each other, but how we value education how we tend to the ground we walk on and the planet that we're a part of. Um, And so I I feel very strongly that society needs strong, clear voices and um, unique approaches to holding the truth of human mortality in our space, not to be obsessed or morbid, but to actually be awake and alive and at cause for the society that we build,
0: absolutely. And I think what what makes life so precious is that it ends. It's like it's not going to last forever. It it and you based your life on where you are. Um, I just think you know a lot of things are wasted on the youth, <laughs> but, but because you know as you grow older, you're you become more of who you are truly and who. Um, you know, more flexible and more understanding, less judgmental, um, all of those things. And when you talk about um, something outside of that medical model, because, you know, hospice started outside the medical model and it slowly over the last 35, 40 years moved into the medical model. And I believe uh, my, our generation and the generations um, behind us, and even the baby boomers, they're, they're demanding that they are, want to do it different and, and differently. And how do we accommodate that? And I believe the one way is, is this company, this you know re- resolution care it can look and treat people in the community in a very different way and never possibly never see the inside of a hospital.
1: That's what we hope for, and that's what we've demonstrated in um, uh, the data that we've collected with our health plan partners and with some other uh, participating sites. We demonstrated that not only did we cause skyrocketing improvements in patient-reported quality of life and patient-reported satisfaction, uh, we also saved um, better than $3 for every dollar invested in providing this care to uh, in this population to Medicaid participants, to people that um, live with the greatest challenges economically, socially, with mental health issues, housing security, food security, all that kind of stuff. The hardest patients, we were able to demonstrate enormous improvements in quality, satisfaction, and substantial reductions in cost. Um, it's a no-brainer to proceed in this way. So
0: you you started with a a crowdfunding. You you got the capital to start.
1: Then I begged my friends and family, um, and uh, had modest <laughs> and substantial success in uh, inviting uh, investment uh, in that fashion because people love me, know who I am, and they trust me. Um, even though the investment is was uh, in the first couple of years, ridiculously risky. Right.
0: But you, but you're still looking for investors for your company.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's more like, I mean, yes, indeed, we need capital to grow. Um, but I'm also quite interested in building out the base of support from within this organization to do this very differently. And so it's an invitation for people. And I, I think, um, A much less risky proposition than it was two years ago um, uh, to come in and we've structured an investment that is i think very attractive so it's an invitation for people who are both inspired and need to manage their assets effectively to uh, build the future of healthcare i mean if we get this right in death and dying um, then we can get to work on reverse engineering the whole rest of the Uh, healthcare that's provided during the life cycle.
0: Well, Michael, I'm telling you, this is the future of palliative care and you're ahead of the curve and, and you're, what you are doing is so innovative. Um, it, we are, all of us are going to catch up with you and, and what you're doing and this whole telemedicine and this agency. I mean, if there are individuals that have capital, this is the future of palliative care?
1: Well, cool. You know, the the truth is that, you know, I am not alone. And I didn't come up with all these ideas, and I didn't invent the intertubes, and I didn't uh, figure out how to uh, make video conferencing fairly seamless and easy. Um, And I didn't figure out um, the sort of fundamental underlying principles of palliative care. I mean, the work of Diane Meyer and the Center to Advance Palliative Care and this sort of exciting kind of crackling energy on the West Coast, sort of in the San Francisco Bay Area, including my friends and amazing colleagues, B.J. Miller, Jessica Zitter, Mike Rabo at UCSF, C-Panelat, um, and then Shoshana. And I mean, this is an amazing moment in our society where, you know, people complain about Millennials uh, always having their head in their their, their <laughs> always having their head in their phones and all the rest of it and uh, being uh, tricky um, employees and workforce but the one thing that they bring to society that's really necessary is in this ex- sort of huge stream of information that we're all exposed to they bring a sort of Rigor about looking straight at the hard stuff, and it's a it's an invitation and an opportunity for those of us that have been working in this space to bring good, solid, and uh, inspiring information about um, improving the realities of life for people who are facing illness. And so, it's a very welcoming time to be talking about what's true and so and unavoidably necessary to address.
0: Are you looking for individuals to join your team, like palliative care physicians, outside of your area right now?
1: Well, yeah. Um, what's interesting about when you, when you free yourself up from a bricks-and-mortar delivery system and build a sort of distributed workforce and a network that lives... Uh, and is integrated by information technology. People don't have to be recruited to come up and move to a rural environment uh, or to live in this particular town and uproot themselves. They're not even required by our organization to offer full-time employment. Anybody with a California license who's got skills in palliative care um, as a physician, a social worker, a nurse practitioner, PA, uh, nurse, uh, chaplain, all of those people can participate as much or as little as they want as a part of a network and live wherever they want. As long as they're, if they're required to have a license to practice, as long as they're licensed in the state of California, we welcome their interest and involvement. And they can send me their uh, cover letter and resume to info at um, if they are investors, they can write me specifically and personally at michael at resolutioncare.com um, and if they just want to get a feel for the work that we've done, some of the media content that we produced and the voices of the people we care for um, our website is www.resolutioncare.com Please sign up for the newsletter. We only send good stuff and don't spamify anybody.
0: That's right. You do. You do. You send great stuff out and your website is amazing. And I will encourage, um, I, I'll double down on that because you guys are doing some amazing work and I want to see this being delivered in every state one day. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the way you're looking at palliative care and the delivery of palliative care and also the reimbursement model of palliative care very differently. And I support you 100%. And I'm very, very excited about watching you grow and this agency grow and also have that balance of, you know, life as well as doing something you love. So I think you're on to something.
1: Well, I mean, Ashok, Thank you for that. And, you know, it just so turns out that this little bit of our society, um, new systems for providing palliative care is what's on my plate. But there's a, a sort of a meta message here that it is possible from wherever you are with whatever you've got towards whatever's important to you that you can make a difference by using these unbelievably powerful tools to break down what doesn't work and rebuild what works better to provide a better life for the people around you and meaning and purpose for the life that you're living. That's bigger than palliative care, telemedicine, value-based payment, and all the rest of it. Um, From a little town in far northern California, I've been able to create an organization, created jobs for 25 people, Um, We've taken care of over 900 people in two and a half years. Uh, We've got 135 people in our community that we're caring for now. By this time next year, it'll probably be three or four times that. Um, It can be done. Um, And it can be done by working together collaboratively and inspired by what is needed, by looking at all the challenges and problems that it's so tempting to just complain about and getting into them and unpacking them so that you can find the opportunities that are hidden inside of what drives you the most crazy
0: well i can't tell you how much i appreciate what your entire team is doing i can't tell you how much i appreciate your time today and keep doing good works my friend um it's it's going to it's going to grow and it already has. And so I really do admire you and and your team and the work that you do.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to share my stuff and to tell my story.
0: Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.